Friends and travelers, however you've arrived, I bid you welcome. Here at Let's Be Frank, we're about lives, and above all, living well. I don't suspect a podcast hosted by Benjamin Franklin could be about anything else. In my lifetime, I pursued the practice of moral improvement like a science, recording my successes, and yes, oftentimes reveling in my failings. It's my genuine hope, with our weekly almanac, to feed to a curious world delicious morsels of history in quick and concise installments, perfect for a nice sit in your favorite chair, a morning walk to work. At the end of each installment, I like to wrap it all up in a neat little parcel with a lesson you can apply to your own life, inspired by the events, personalities, and ideas covered in each episode. So sit back, relax, and together, let's make history. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. My friends, we put out the call and you, my beloved Junto, answered. We received so many entries for our first annual Dress Like a Benjamin costume contest. Uh, We saw golden retrievers and spectacles. We saw cocker spaniels with buckled shoes. I did not see any goldfishes this year, but I am not entirely dissuaded that there is not some form of fish out there that bears a unique resemblance to myself. Maybe we can find one next year. But through all of this, we distilled our entries to several finalists, and from that, I am pleased to say we have picked a winner. I hope, my beloved Junto, you will join me in congratulating young Miss Kate Brahman of North Carolina for her entirely historically accurate impersonation of me. You can find Miss Brahmin's impersonation, as well as all the other finalists, on our Instagram page. Thank you all for playing with us this Halloween. I'm so excited for next year. Now, with all that out of the way, we can get to today's installment. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Dr. Benjamin Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is the first part of an interview I had with an incredible person who explores teaching history in a most unique way. Today's episode is about women in trades. It's about interpreting our heritage, and it's about uncovering the past with a variety of historic tools. I had a recent sojourn to Williamsburg, Virginia, the capital of the colony of Virginia for nearly a hundred years. In the bustle of that city, I found myself wandering to the back of a trade shop, a silversmith run by one James Craig, where one of his apprentices was closing up shop for the night. We spoke for a brief moment in conversation, and she agreed to an interview to appear on my podcast. So to introduce her, Megan Catwell is an apprentice silversmith with the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation who, in her free time, 
works as a silversmith using the techniques she has developed in examining history and her craft for nearly the last decade. I should clarify that the opinions expressed over the course of this interview, both for this episode and the next one, are her own and not a reflection of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Please join me in welcoming our guest for the first part of our interview together. Uh, Mistress Catwell, thank you so much for joining us at Let's Be Frank. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, I thought we could begin by you uh, telling our listeners a little bit about your work, but I also thought you could paint a picture of how you are dressed in this moment. All right. So uh, I'm an apprentice historic silversmith at uh, the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. And right now what I'm wearing is what everyone uh, who's a costume interpreter wears. So uh, I'm dressed as an 18th century working class woman right now complete with the buckle shoes and the stays uh, and the, the cap with the ribbon and everything. Fascinating. Now, if I can ask, what first got you involved in wanting to pursue this vocation? Did you decide at an early age that you wanted to be a silversmith or instead was it the history and the costumes that drew you to this work and instead you were directed to silversmithing entirely by accident? So I've always enjoyed history ever since I was small. Uh, but I had never actually worked with metal until I got an internship here uh, during a summer a couple years ago. And then eventually that turned into a full-time job, which is an apprenticeship in the trades here, uh, which on average takes roughly seven years to complete. So I've always loved history. I've always liked making things. Uh, and it just kind of came together in a job position that had both. What a truly extraordinary investment in time. Now, for our modern listeners who may be unfamiliar with what it is to be a tradesperson in the 18th century. Could you talk to us a little bit about the tradesperson, where they fit into society, what their role was, and, and above all, how they fit in the greater tapestry of the 18th century world? So your tradespeople are going to be middle-class workers, uh, and essentially when you're looking at trades, from what I understand at this time period, to, they're not really viewed as artisans so much as an apprenticeship was meant to create a human machine, someone who's going to be creating these things that your particular trade would make sun up to sundown six days a week. So there's definitely art behind it, but this was going to be your job for the rest of your life from the time you signed up as an apprentice or your parents signed you up for it uh, by signing that apprenticeship document until basically you were no longer able to work anymore. But today we definitely view it as artwork, uh, but depending on which trade you're looking at, uh, there can be an argument made either way in the time period uh, for people's preferences, uh, but definitely working with silver you'll get a lot of people today saying it's artwork. But the trend of the 18th century was, as a silversmith, we knew these objects would be popular for roughly 10 years, and then the fashions would change, and then we're expected to melt them down and make them into new stuff. <laughs> So we know making these things that they're going to be recycled, right? How very environmental. <laughs> yeah, and ultimately it's always cheaper and easier to melt down and recycle metal than it is to go out and extract and mine and refine more. Uh, so ever since mankind started working, especially precious metals, it's always been recycled and still is today. Can you tell us a little bit about the trade of silversmithing specifically? Um, how is it different from other trades? How is it unique? Yeah. 
so silversmiths, uh, basically what we're doing is taking whatever money you, the customer, brought in, and we're going to melt it down and then hammer it up into something new. So smith essentially comes from the word smite or smythe, meaning to strike or to hit. You are hammering the metal in your title to change its shape. That's your primary tool. So we're not pouring liquid silver into molds and out pops, you know, a piece of jewelry or spoon or anything. Most things are going to be hammered up and into shape. And we can quite literally stretch your dollar as it was because we are literally melting down your coinage to create something. And that was legal and expected for most of human history around the world. I, uh, I'm sorry for pausing. I, I find that to be completely fascinating. I, I, I'm entirely bowled over by that. You, you mean to tell me that you are paid in silver coinage, um, minted money. You, you physically melt that amount down, turn it into the product that the person is paying you with that silver. You're taking the silver they gave you, turning it into the product they ordered, and giving it back to them. I, I assume then keeping a a portion of that silver for yourself as, as payment? I, I'm, I'm entirely fascinated by this. Can you, can you explain it a little bit more? Yes. So basically what's going to happen is because we have no silver or gold mines on the East Coast, at least none that are uh, worth extracting anyway, we're dependent on you, the customer, coming into the shop with the silver that is going to be enough to make your object and then enough to pay us our fee for doing that. So what's going to happen is we'll weigh it on the scales in front of you, because that's basically your cash register of the time period. You're going to tell me what it is you want me to make, and I will let you know if you have enough there to make the object and pay me. For things that take a couple hours or maybe a day, we're going to keep roughly a third of the weight. seems to be a pretty standard pricing of the time, and the other two-thirds get changed into the item. Uh, for larger items that take multiple days or weeks, it starts at half and goes up from there. But in the act of making it is when I remove my fee, and then I weigh the object in front of you when I'm done so you can see I didn't take more than what I said. Fascinating. Now, was silversmithing a more prestigious trade because you were working with precious materials? Uh, did it stand out more in society compared to more uh, mechanical trades? Ah, yeah, um, basically, when you're looking at silversmiths, and really any tradesperson of the time, you're going to be solidly middle class. You're not necessarily making any more money than like the cooper down the street or the carpenter or blacksmith. It all just comes down to how well the business is doing. So a well-run business that's popular, you can make more money. One that's not so much, less money. Uh, but silversmiths do tend to be kept in higher uh, esteem than some other trades because we are quite literally working with your money. There has to be a level of trust there. And we're sort of the proto-bankers, because banking is really new in the 18th century. Uh, Williamsburg is the capital of the wealthiest colony, and it doesn't even have a bank. That's how new it was. So we might be kept in higher esteem, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're making more money than other tradespeople are. Now, the thing we're particularly curious about, that we're anxious to talk about today, are women in trades. There are certain ideas or images evoked when we talk about uh, a blacksmith, a large bearded burly man swinging a hammer over his anvil. Uh, but the truth of the matter, like a great many things, is, is much more complex, much more nuanced, much more diverse. And so, uh, speaking to a lady in trades, how common were women in trades? How did they define the norms of the time? And how did they defy the norms of the time? 
So women are actually incredibly common in the trades, but there are male-dominated trades and female-dominated trades. So some trades you are going to see quite a lot more men in, but if you walked into a shop and saw a woman working there, it wouldn't have turned your head and vice versa is true too. So like mantua making, millinery, those are female dominated trades, but you see man milliners. Uh, so a woman walking into one of those shops and seeing a man working wouldn't have been anything, you know, unheard of. Uh, but when you walk into a smithing shop of any kind, smiths of any kind are male dominated, but there's actually more female blacksmiths than there are female silversmiths. Uh, blacksmiths make things that are necessary for life they make, uh, you know, things for your home, uh, nails, hinges, shutter dogs. They make cooking implements. They make implements of farming and gardening and also of war. Silversmithing is a luxury trade. We don't make anything that's completely necessary. And even the coins wouldn't be made by us. Those would be made by the mint, by coiners. Uh, we know how to. It's just you can't legally do that unless you're the mint. Uh, but basically, it all just comes down to could you physically do the job? And keep in mind that women and free people of color were paid one to two thirds less for the same job. So if you're a journeyman tradesperson, uh, someone who is getting their daily pay, uh, if you go and get hired at a trade shop that is looking for workers, unless the master, mistress, the owner of the business, unless their prejudice is more important than their profit margin, they wanna pay people as little as possible to get as much work as possible, right? So the really question comes down to is why wouldn't you hire a woman or why wouldn't you hire a free person of color for that same job? I must wonder, Mistress Catwell, if you could explain to our junto what precisely is a shutter dog and what is its function? Uh, the shutter dogs are what you'd see outside of the house on uh, uh, the bottom of the shutters. So it's a little free swing sort of hinge, I guess is for lack of a better term to describe it. But when you open up the shutters, you can turn the shutter dog up to hold the shutter against the house. And then when it's time to close it, you turn it uh, so that the shutter dog uh, opens up and allows the shutter to close. So a lot of people see them but don't actually know what the word is. Well, now we know. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a favorite account or a person from the past that you've discovered and connected with by exploring women in trades? Uh, I really like Hester Bateman. She is one of the most well-known silversmiths of this time period, man or female. Uh, she is based out of London, and we actually have one of her spoons at the shop that I get to handle. And the Bateman family becomes a silversmithing dynasty pretty much because of her. Uh, she lives until she's about 81 years old. She's born in the early 1700s in London. And when her husband passes, she inherits the shop, and she runs it so incredibly well that her children are able to inherit it. Uh, her actual daughter-in-law, Anne, uh, ends up, kind of, it seems like, spearheading the business from then on, if I remember correctly. Uh, and then the grandchildren inherit it, and then the great-grandchild <laughs> inherits it. So they're incredibly well-known. Uh, but the reason that I really enjoy reading about her is that she's one of the first silversmiths to use steam engines in her work. Uh, so she gets a hold of one, and is using it to power some of the machinery like rolling mill uh, to make her pieces thinner and faster and then it becomes very prolific. So you see her work a lot. Fascinating. Uh, Mistress Cantwell, I am so engaged in this conversation and 
anxious to talk about how all of the history that you've discovered over the course of your career has translated to working in the 21st century. And so I think it's a perfect time to pause our interview and pick it up next week. Now, my friends, what lesson can we derive from the first part of this interview discussing women in trades? Today, Mistress Cantwell talked about people bringing something to a silversmith, and that smith taking that something, turning it into something else, and keeping a little for themselves. It makes me think of how this can be applied to life. The things we bring to the table every day that we ask the world to turn into something special, with our labor being some of what the world takes in return. Every day, minute by minute, we see little transactions of this nature, alchemical changes as we pursue our wants and our desires. It leads me, I think, to the perfect lesson for part one of this interview. My friends, if you know how to spend less than you get, you have the Philosopher's Stone. So today, my beloved Junto, step out into the world and turn lead into gold. That's all for today's installment. With that, we have more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Before we close, we wanted to bid a special thank you to Rebecca Bryant for joining the friend of Franklin Tier of our Patreon. Welcome, Miss Bryant, to the Junto. Love the wit and wisdom of Dr. Benjamin Franklin in the 21st century? Become a member of the Junto by joining our Patreon today. You can find the link in this episode's show notes. We'd love for you to join our family. Resource materials and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal section at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Facebook at Let's Be Frank and Instagram at Be Franklin Live. And finally, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my